from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. I'm my President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 25th. Today, California strikes a surprising deal with automakers. The trauma of being a social media moderator and the rise of the four-day work week. So, Juliet, what is the news today? This is huge news. Four automakers have forged an agreement with California to make their cars and light trucks more efficient in the years to come. Juliet Alprin is a senior national affairs correspondent for The Post. And this morning, she reported that four car manufacturers, Ford, Honda, BMW, and Volkswagen, secretly negotiated a fuel emissions deal with the state of California. In that deal, they promise that their new cars will average 50 miles per gallon by 2026. And that directly undermines one of the Trump administration's most aggressive rollbacks of climate change regulations from the Obama administration. It matters for a number of reasons, including the fact that it's going to affect the kinds of vehicles that you and I and Americans across the country will be driving five years from now. What they're saying is that they're going to make their fleets more efficient, even though the Trump administration is in on the cusp of finalizing a rule that will say that they don't have to do it, that they're going to freeze mileage standards at 37 miles per gallon, as opposed to going to roughly 50 miles per gallon by model year 2026. So that's the part that I don't understand. If these automakers have the option of just adhering to these new federal standards under the Trump administration, uh, standards that are way more lax, way less taxing for them, then why would they play ball with California and basically force themselves to do something that's a lot more difficult, making a lot of their cars much more fuel efficient, much more quickly? This is something that will undercut President Trump's most significant climate policy reversal of former President Obama. So President Trump came in and, at the request of automakers, agreed to take a second look at federal mileage standards in the years to come. As you know, one of the first things that President Trump did as he came into office was invite the auto alliance, manufacturers, auto dealers, to the White House to talk about the importance of auto manufacturing and that sector of our economy. And they did this because automakers were arguing that President Obama and his his deputies had rushed to finalize standards that simply were not feasible given Americans' desire to have bigger cars in light of cheaper gas. As you know, I'm here to announce that those standards that were set, uh, that we are obligated to, to evaluate, we are determining, I am determining that those standards are inappropriate and should be revised. And what happened is that the Trump administration plunged ahead with this rollback to the point where essentially automakers said they were going too far. They were facing a situation where California, which has a really interesting authority under the Clean Air Act, has the right to set its own tailpipe standards as long as it gets a federal waiver. And California said they were going to go ahead and keep with the stricter Obama-era standards. And once talks broke down between the White House and California, the automakers were in a pickle. And they went secretly to California. Well, 
When you say they were in a pickle, why is that? Because the reason why this kind of split between the White House and California is so significant is California, along with 13 other states and the district, have all committed to curbing greenhouse gas emissions and setting certain standards for autos. And as a result, they represent more than a third of the auto market in the U.S. So what automakers were facing was the prospect that the federal government would say, you can have less efficient cars, but roughly a third of the of the U.S. market would still be requiring them to produce more efficient fleets. And when you have that kind of situation, it becomes really difficult. You have to start selling different kinds of cars in different states to meet other targets. And that's just really not the way automakers want to work. So that even though theoretically these automakers would want these much more lax federal standards from the Trump administration, that when it comes down to it, they were like, we'd rather just have one stricter set of standards that we know will be able to apply to everyone. Absolutely. And also keep in mind that they're facing the prospect that President Trump might win a second term, but he might not. And what if one of these Democratic presidential candidates who are talking about really sweeping changes to the economy to address climate change come in and say in 2021, you know what, we're issuing new rules and you have to be so efficient a few years from now that it's going to upend your entire market. Has the Trump administration said anything yet about the fact that their big effort to roll back these fuel efficiency regulations is kind of completely being undercut by California? Administration officials say that they are forging ahead with their proposal. The National Highway and Traffic Safety Administration sent an email this morning to me saying that they are, that any automaker is welcome to produce whatever sort of vehicles they want, but they plan to finalize the rule that they had unveiled last year. So these automakers were in kind of secret negotiations with the state of California. It's extraordinary. The fact that they were in secret talks for five weeks, which we were the first to report, is really something that just is not done. When you look at how this these discussions have gone for over a decade, the auto industry tries very hard to speak with one voice. And that's what we've seen under both Democratic and Republican administrations. They talk as a group because they feel like even though they're in very different places, their strongest negotiating point is when they can be united. And so the fact that a handful of companies have broken off, talked behind closed doors to California, and not even informed all their other partners in the auto industry about the deal that they were crafting really shows how anxious they were at the idea that they might be facing uncharted territory going forward. So this is Ford, Honda, Volkswagen, and BMW. And the fact that they're going to meet these higher standards for fuel efficiency, will that have that big of an effect on actual emissions in the country? This is incredibly significant because the transportation sector is now the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. It accounts for roughly 28 percent of the nation's carbon output. And unlike, say, when you have the power sector and the fact that we have plenty of solar and wind and nuclear and natural gas as supplies, when it comes to cars, 98 percent of them still run on oil. And so these four companies collectively represent 
nearly 30% of the U.S. auto market. I think the real question mark going forward is who else joins on. So that's what we're absolutely going to be looking for in in the days to come. You know, again, some of these automakers might be in different positions. Some have just had changes at the very top, which might delay an announcement. But if you had a few other major producers join on, particularly something like General Motors, that's really the company to watch at this point. That will have huge ramifications for what kind of cars and light trucks Americans will be buying in the years to come. I think that this is so interesting because in some ways it's not just about cars, right? It's about the fact that you have this state government that could step in and basically institute a policy that affects the entire country, the entire world, even though it's in direct conflict with what the federal government is trying to do. It really underscores the role that particularly California has been playing in the Trump era. They've been obviously doing this for a long time. They were the first state to adopt tailpipe standards curbing greenhouse gas emissions a couple of decades ago. And so they've kind of been in the vanguard, certainly on environmental policy for years, and have been forcing the federal government in some ways to play catch up. But you really are seeing this decentralization where you have states and the private sector in many ways driving outcomes because you have the federal government pulling back. And one thing I think that's so fascinating about this entire situation, and it's happening in the auto sector, but it's also happening, say, in the power sector, is that the Trump administration is working to unravel these federal requirements, and the private sector is moving ahead even without them. So we're really in a whole new world when it comes to the environment and federal rules. Juliet Alprin is a senior national affairs correspondent for The Post. You post something on YouTube or on Facebook, and it goes out to the world with no editor. Elizabeth Dwoskin covers technology for The Post. Increasingly, there is this artificial intelligence that's scanning these posts and looking for child exploitation, pornography, nudity. Oh, skin. Oh, Somebody may flag your post as inappropriate or bullying. Someone might report you. And if someone reports you, it might get flagged to a content moderator who could be a young person in a call center in the Philippines or in Austin or in Dublin or all around the world, basically fielding all the reports in real time from billions of people. So this is like an entire job for people, for lots of people. It's just like looking at all of this content that is flagged on the Internet to see, okay, is this a violation of our terms of service? Yeah, it's one of the fastest growing jobs in tech. I mean, both YouTube and Facebook and increasingly Twitter have hired tens of thousands of people in the last two years because they've gotten a lot more scrutiny about what's you know Russian meddling, drug peddling on Instagram, I mean, you name it. They're getting this pressure to police more and more. 
We'll have order in the hearing room. Is it unreasonable to think that that Twitter could not modify its algorithms to, to stop some of this? Not, not unreasonable at all. It's just a matter of work and doing the work, and, and that is our Okay, well, I'd submit to you that you need to do that work, and you need to get to it pretty quick. Let me ask you another Tech companies have always had this veneer of automation. Everything they're doing is just technology. But the fact is, is it's deeply human. Silicon Valley is increasingly dependent on humans to basically pick up where technology falls short. And increasingly, you have tech companies that are required to make more and more nuanced judgment calls about what accounts as bullying, what counts as hate speech. And so that's fascinating to me. I'm like, the fact that the free speech of the world is outsourced to like a 24-year-old in the Philippines who's completely unseen and making all these critical decisions about who gets to speak in the global town square, that's what I wanted to know more about. First, um... Uh, hopefully it's going to be, the audio yeah, yeah, yeah. is going to be so good. Um, so, first so you went to the Philippines to talk to some of these content moderators. What was that like? So at first when we went to Manila, it's just this sea of office towers. And we had the addresses, you know, that we had painstakingly found out. Where does Twitter have its offices? You know, because it's not Twitter, it's an outsourcer. And sometimes it's an outsourcer of an outsourcer. And one of the people that I ended up meeting is a young man who, right now he's, he's mostly anonymous, as basically everyone we spoke to was anonymous because of these confidentiality documents that they signed. And they're very fearful that they could be sued for years in the future if they say anything, like where they work. Tell people, young, young, young He's in his mid-30s who had worked for YouTube and had also worked for Twitter as a moderator for about eight months and then quit, basically, because he couldn't take it. I probably discouraged them to be a content moderator. Why? Because I think there is an effect um, psychologically um, to yourself. It's a very psychologically taxing job. You know, you come in. For nine hours a day, you're viewing the most gruesome content on the Internet. I asked him, how many suicides did you see? How many beheadings have you seen? How many, if you could estimate the number of beheadings that you've seen? A lot. And what if you counted up all violent acts like suicide and... There's a lot. Like, would you say over a thousand, thousands in your time? Yeah, in my time. A thousand. Think about if you saw even one of those things, how that would affect you. And then think about seeing those in your job. And then think about working in a call center environment where your breaks are monitored down to the minute. So if you even want to go to the bathroom, you're logging out of the system to tell them, okay, I took a four-minute bathroom break. So there's kind of an incentive not to take a break. Um, How many posts were you expected to moderate in a day? Yeah, I think hundreds to... I'm just human. Um, I just... Hundreds... 100, 200, 300, but that's a lot. You have to zoom in on these images, like really look closely, like is the knife slashing their throat or is the knife going into their heart? Is it a suicide? I mean, you have to zoom in on these things and mark them up because part of their job is to train AI and train technology to do this. They have to pause the video. They have to rewind the video. They have to zoom in on the video. They have to see what's really happening. They have to see it. And they say they can't unsee it. And what kind of effect did it have on him to be seeing all these things all the time? Um, actually, I didn't know that it has really an effect. 
Well, in his case, and this is not uncommon, one, you know, he still has nightmares. So now he's left, he's left, he's about eight or nine months out from the job. And he still has nightmares about the job. And it also had like a very twisted psychological effect on him. And I talked to other people who had similar impact. So one is paranoia. That's not that uncommon. You start like locking your doors like seven times a night, or you think someone's going to mug you in the street because these are all things you've seen. The other thing that happened to him, you know, he has to watch like images of like incest and bestiality, like sexual perversion. So, you know, for a lot of people that's repulsive, but for him, there was like a perverse pleasure in it. Of course, I'm just human. I I watch porn, right? But seeing um, the extreme kind of porn, like bestiality, when I work, when I still working, I still had that thoughts of of checking those porn sites with uh, some speciality and sometimes I I want to watch incest porn right that and I know that's a, that's a, that's not right he knew that that was wrong. He's very religious. A lot of people in the Philippines are really Catholic, so he knew that that was wrong. And he finds now that even after he left the job, he finds himself, like, in the middle of the night still Googling and, like, using websites to find that kind of stuff. Because he he's been so wrong. exposed to it and it's become so normalized for him. That's what he said. He basically said, "It's I, I know it's not normal, but everything is normal now. Because I don't want to, to really watch those. But since I had that... Um, exposure in content moderation. It just normalizes things. From my perspective, it's just normal. And I pray that it will be erased um, forever. He had had some history of depression. It's well known that for people who might have any underlying psychological issue, which is a lot of us, and you're going through life and you're okay, but then you get exposed suddenly to tons of suicides, and it may trigger you to contemplate suicide. But uh, when I entered content moderation, it magnifies the when I when I go to uh, I told you about the building. Um, what if I jump here? What will happen? You know, he would now say that even today, eight months later, you know, whenever he goes to a tall building in Manila, he thinks, "What if I would jump?" And he remembers the suicides that he viewed, where people would be jumping off buildings. Um, same scenario that I saw every morning, every morning in the shift. Um, that's the feeling. It just magnifies the feelings that I have. Um, it's really weird, right? He's not the only person that told me that. I don't want to give anyone the impression that everyone who does this job gets what they call suicidal ideation. But what is really clear is that if you have an underlying psychological thing going on, which could just be depression, which so many of us have, you may not know you're not cut out for the job. When they interview you, they're going to ask you, okay, here you're going to see some ugly stuff. Are you okay with that? But it's basically like, you know, you're not having a psychological evaluation. You might tell people, yeah, I'll be okay with this. But the reality is you may not be okay with this. It's not right to, 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 to think that way of doing something that, that's, that will kill you. Right. 
So what protocol does Facebook and other companies have in place to make sure that these people are doing okay and coping with all the stuff that they're seeing? That's evolving. And I'll I'll put an umbrella over this to say that anything the companies tell us, we basically just have to take their word for it. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to actually interview moderators, because the companies will say, we give psychological support to everyone. But what does that psychological support really look like? And what a lot of people told us is, you know, if you work on the night shift, it's much harder to schedule with a counselor. Or we only get time with a counselor once a month, 30 minutes once a month. Is that really enough if you're doing one of the most stressful jobs in the whole tech industry? In terms of what Facebook has done. Facebook has probably done the most. In the last year or so, they've changed some of their practices. Like they've, in certain offices, people can take from nine minutes to an hour a day of, quote, wellness time that's additional to their extra breaks. In that wellness time, they could go see a therapist. Sometimes the therapist is on video chat. They're not in the office. They've created what they call a resiliency program, a trauma-informed resiliency program. And so they have full-time psychologists on staff in Menlo Park that are trying to craft resiliency programs that can be outsourced. But just remember, this is a company that hires outsourcing companies all over the world. The directive that comes down the pike from the mothership may not be what the actual outsourcing companies follow. Like, for example, you know, they might have a yoga room. But in practice, the managers in the call center say, oh, no, we have to meet this quota or we have to meet this target. In the one office, they told us they didn't even tell the people where the yoga room was. And so the workers were like, oh, clearly they don't want us to take a meditation or a yoga break. They want us to sit here and meet a quota. So there's there's a lot of like gaps between, I think, what the companies describe and what a lot of people told us happens in practice. Facebook told The Post that it's planning to provide its moderators with unlimited access to in-person counseling, and it's trying to end quotas for reviewing posts. Twitter says that it's trying harder, too. The company says it now offers daily counseling, and it's also instructed contractors to begin offering added psychological support to workers even after they leave the job. The reality is that they say they want to be more compassionate. They don't want people to be traumatized. They want to do more to bring the workers out of the shadows and pay more and give people some more support, or so they say, and some of them have done more than others. But the other reality is, how much can you actually do? Because you're talking about tens of thousands of people. It sounds like a lot of the day-to-day realities of this job is looking at awful content, flagging things that are violent or sexually explicit. But another big part of this job is trying to see if something qualifies as hate speech or being a sort of arbiter of language and whether the language that's used should be allowed on social media or not allowed. What is that like? That's really hard for Filipino moderators. Because the Philippines workers are getting the world's content, Companies like Facebook and YouTube have a big problem with language skills, getting enough people who have the language skills to actually moderate. And so many workers in the Philippines or several workers told us that they moderate in up to 10 different languages that they don't speak. Oh, wow. So How do they do that? The first step is to find someone in the office who speaks the language. If they can't, Google Translate's the go-to. And then they also told us that they use Urban Dictionary a lot, too, which I just thought was so funny because— Like they're just typing in, is this a bad word or not? Is this racist or not? Yeah. You know, how is this phrase used? It's uh, 
completely different context. And then remember, they're also moderating. People in the Philippines are moderating a lot of these culture wars in the United States. So just think about all the nuance of human expression and human language and human communication and how culturally nuanced it is. And think about how that's getting outsourced to a person who's completely divorced from that reality. How much are these people getting paid? Well, it really varies, and that's why it was fascinating to look around the world. The moderators in Dublin would tell us that they weren't allowed to discuss pay or even were discouraged from much contact with, let's say, their counterparts in the Philippines because maybe they presume the companies don't want the workers to know that there's such a big pay differential. And then you have in the Philippines, you're making you know anywhere from $280 to $550 a month depending on if you're working the night shift or if you're working – Um, a different language. You get paid more if you have multiple language skills. And in the Philippines, that's like a middle-class salary. Unlike in the U.S., where people, I think, were much more vocal about being able to say, like, this job doesn't make ends meet. You know, I saw this job as a stepping stone, but it's kind of a dead-end job. In the Philippines, working in a call center, it's a ticket to a middle-class life. And so people are less likely to even complain because it's good pay for them. It feels like this isn't good for anybody, right? Like, The people who have to do this job are under this enormous amount of pressure, and they're being subjected to these really awful things that they have to to read and to see. And then there are all these situations where the way that content moderation works, it's clear that it's broken, that they're not necessarily super well-equipped to do that arbitration about language and and what is okay and what is offensive and what is hate speech, that they, they can't do that with a lot of nuance. So what's the solution here? Yeah, it's very messy and human. And it's the first job where I've interviewed people where they, where several people told me they would be happy if AI took over their job. People were like, bring it on, because humans shouldn't be doing this. But the reality is that AI will not be able to make those nuanced judgment calls anytime soon or if ever. This is one of the fastest growing jobs. And there's literally not enough content moderators in the world that can moderate these social platforms. They're just... They're bigger than nation states. Even if you do hire a lot, are they going to be equipped enough to make these judgment calls? So I think one of the questions that's emerging in in France and in Europe and New Zealand and the United States is what is acceptable? What will societies accept? You're asking what the solution is. And right now, I just I don't think that there is one. Elizabeth Waskin is a Silicon Valley correspondent for The Post. You can read more of Liz's extensive reporting on content moderators around the world at postreports.com. And now, one more thing. Thank God it's Thursday. I'm not a sociologist, but I I think it's pretty clear that America has a culture of workism that is really uh, intense and not always necessarily healthy. My name is Jeff Stein, and I'm an economic policy reporter for The Washington Post five days out of the week. Across history, really, what you've seen traditionally, uh, with the exception of the last 30 to 40 years, is that as the economy gets more efficient, Some of those gains and some of the results of increased efficiency result in workers getting to have more time at home. That really has not been the case in the last 40 years, particularly in the U.S. In 
many of the Scandinavian countries and many of the Western European countries, there's been a quite substantial reduction in working hours. People are just working less because they're producing more and therefore they don't have to be on the job as long. But in the U.S., something appears to be not working that well. And as a result, people are working just as hard as ever. Working hours overall for the average worker are about flat from 40 years ago, even though productivity is up 77% over that amount of time. And traditionally, you hear people talk about taxing the rich and redistributing those gains to the poor or offering public services. What the new push for a four-day work week has really been about is about making a reduction in working hours a centerpiece of workers' rights as opposed to just saying, let's redistribute income. Let's also talk about redistributing time as a valuable commodity for most people. So far in the U.S., some firms have moved to a four-day work week, and they've cast this as a way to improve productivity and improve the bottom lines of their companies. What we're seeing in Europe recently is something very different, a move for a four-day work week as a way to empower workers as a worker demand and as a part of the left in Europe as part of a suite of demands that calls for a reduction in working hours overall. In Norway and Denmark, if we had their levels of working hours, their average working hours per person, the average American worker would get an additional 2.2 months of vacation time. You know, there's nothing more liberating than having free time away from work. You can, you can do whatever you want. And that, I think, really illustrates, you know, the, the core of this debate, which is what are we trying to do as, a, as an economy? What is the point of this economy? Is it for us to be able to work more hours or is it... Is the success of the economy supposed to allow us to enjoy the fruits of that work? <laughs> with a four-day week, I would definitely spend more time with my puppy, Acorn. I have no doubt that she would probably be the biggest proponent of a four-day work week around. Jeff Stein is an economic policy reporter for The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. For updates about post reports and behind the scenes insights about our episodes, follow me on Twitter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. Hi, it's Lillian Cunningham, host of the Washington Post's Presidential and Constitutional Podcasts. Come with me on my next podcast journey, Moonrise. Moonrise reexamines the story you thought you knew about why we went to the moon. I dig into newly declassified documents and presidential records, closed-door political deals, the Cold War nuclear arms race, and even the history of science fiction to tell a new story about space. It's one that's darker, but also truer than the story you've probably heard before. And it has a lot to tell us about ourselves as Americans and as humans. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise.